This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 24. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 24 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Good afternoon, Randy. Hi, Lynn. So in this episode, we're excited for our listeners to hear from David Berkus, author of The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas, and his latest book coming out soon, Randy's already had a chance to read it, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. David writes regularly for Harvard, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Psychology Today, and 99U. He's also the founder and host of Radio Free Leader, a podcast that shares insights on leadership, innovation, and strategy. When David's not speaking or waiting in an airport lounge, he's in the classroom working as an associate professor of management at Oral Roberts University, where he teaches courses on organizational behavior, creativity and innovation, and strategic leadership. Welcome to the show, David. Oh, thank you all so much. And and by the way, might I add, thank you for including me on the intro so that I could hear how to say y'all's last names. We've been emailing back and forth for like a week and I'm all, I got both really wrong in my head. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. They, we, and they, those names are quite a mouthful, aren't they? And my last name is Berkus, which is hard enough, right? And so you think, like I'm, I'm sensitive to it for that reason. And so thank you. Now I got it. I, well, good. We're good. Awesome. All right. So let's dive in right away to talk a little bit about some of the ideas in your book. So in your earlier book uh, on creativity, you basically put forth this collection of misconceptions about creativity. So talk to us about what's moved your thinking uh, from myths of creativity to what struck me as myths of management and the way that we operate as organizations. So, I mean, actually, you're exactly right. In fact, one of the um, one of the titles that hit the cutting room floor because I refused to have another title with myths in it was we threw out that idea of like management myths for the book. So, I mean, automatically, you know that I love pointing out the counterintuitive. But the truth is it, it comes from a longer standing obsession of mine, which is I, I like to call it to facilitate the transfer of good ideas, meaning like there's a lot of research from social science, from neuroscience, from also, I mean, science has taught us a lot and we listen to very little of what it has to tell us. And so whether it's creativity and innovation or in this case, management and leadership, my goal is just to say, hey, here are the things we're doing that maybe don't line up with science and the things we should do might seem crazy, but that's only because what we're doing is actually crazy and we're looking at the same one. So what do you see as the questions that connect the two things, the myths of creativity and under new management? 
So really, I'm, I'm not sure if it's if it's a question other than a question I asked myself or questions I was being asked often, I should say. Um, when I wrote The Mist of Creativity, you know, the whole the whole premise of the book is what are the, the faulty beliefs that we have about creativity and what does that mean for how we work in teams, for how we work in organizations or, or to some extent how we work even individually. And a lot of the questions that I, I got afterwards were exactly that. Like, what, what do we do now? What does that mean? How do we change things? Because in some chapters in the book, I was able to talk about things like, you know, 20 the famous 20% time at Google or hackathons at, at Facebook and to talk about some of the actual like practices and, and policy implications for how do we do creative work. And that sort of that tuned me into this larger shift that we that we're all experiencing from industrial age work to knowledge age work. And that means that a lot of things that change, you know, Dan, Dan Pink, who is an intellectual hero of mine, rightly pointed out that the nature of work changed. So how we motivate people should change. Well, I, what I sort of believe in under new management, what I found in talking about creativity and the myth of creativity was that if the nature of work changed, then everything needs to change. And so that's kind of my goal is to answer those questions in under new management is, OK, now that we know most of the work, most of us, even if we don't think about it, most of the work we're charged to do is creative work, coming up with ideas, making decisions, et cetera. What does that mean for how we structure our organizations for for profit, nonprofit, public sector, what what have you? What does that mean for how we do work every day? So thinking about that, you've sort of given us a segue into our next question here. Um, why should we in the public sector read this book? And what do you see as the best entry points for some of the changes in the public sector? So I, I think there um, there's a couple different things that I, one of that I was surprised to find that some of the some of the crazy ideas I have for 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 profit organizations come from the public sector actually, mm. and that's you know one of the things people always talk about when you're when you're a management professor and you teach in a school of business you know that's usually a different school than the school of public administration or the school of education or or traditional where um, people who end up working in the public sector are generally educated or come out of. And, and there's always this thing that says, oh, the, the government should run more like a business or that nonprofit should more like a, run more like a business. And I don't, I don't actually believe that for a second. I think all organizations should run well, right, which is totally different than whether or not that's a for-profit business, et cetera. And really what uh, the implication for under new management is, it applies for-profit or nonprofit. It, the idea is that there was a time where the system demanded changes from people. Right. And that's true in for profit and factory work when we're trying to make widgets or make an automobile along an assembly line. The needs of creating the product dictated certain demands on what we needed to ask people to make adjustments for. And you see a similar thing, I believe, in education. You know, a lot of um, public education is really about sort of the massive needs of the system instead of individuals. And so what I advocate for in under new management is we need to tailor the management decisions that we make no longer to the product because the product is coming from between the two ears of our people. So we shift from designing an organization around a product to designing an order organization around people. And I think the same thing applies in, in any uh, public sector organization, whether it's education or whether it is um, a municipal uh, organization. We used to think it's about maintaining the system and the changes that we have for the people who work in that system are just going to have to be made because we need to preserve the system. But we live in an age where I think we can actually retail our organizations for the needs of the individual. And mm -hmm. that looks a little crazy. And that's what we talk about in the book are some of the crazy ways that that looks. But if our people if our people are our greatest asset, right, which is a, that cliche term we all love to say, and if if we're in this sort of no longer a physical factory, but an idea factory, then the, the fundamental question of how we design our organization, regardless of sector, is how do we design it around the needs of those people? 
we've really been thinking about this idea of personalization for our students and how our system is somehow preventing us in many ways from actually creating that that opportunity for kids and having to rethink our system so that we can personalize instruction. Yeah. Yeah, I told and, and not only I mean, I would say we're, we're starting to have that conversation. What's interesting to me in the world of education is we're, we're again focusing on, yeah, we need to we need to personalize for the students, which is very, very true. But the students are the only human beings that are involved in the system. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we have this delicate balance between needs of the students, needs of the faculty that we're employing, needs of the staff that we're employing, kind of needs of everybody. And, and how do we do that? And it, it ends up, I mean, honestly, one of the things that's fascinating about the ideas and practices in under management is, is that they look really counterintuitive, but they're counterintuitive because we're asking much more difficult questions. How do we balance the needs of our customers with the needs of our employees? How do we balance the needs of our students with the needs of our faculty? You know, in the in under new management, the second chapter is this idea of um, put customers second, right? Which is crazy to tell, to tell a business person, you know, customer is always right. But a lot of organizations have found that it's the people that interact with the customer and their satisfaction and their access to resources of the organization that is most predictive of customer loyalty. And I think the same thing is true even in education. In other words, you know, at a university level, we have lots of different um, academic freedoms that we give to faculty with the understanding that they know if, if we trust them to interact with students and you and I'm using students here as sort of analogous to customers, which is a, a faulty analogy and I'm making a couple assumptions, but bear with me because um, it's the best one I can <laughs> I can tap into. Um, but if we give them sort of what they need to run their classroom the way that they sort of determine is best, we trust that they will run it best for student learning. Right now, if they take advantage of it and they make it best for them and the students suffer, we'll deal with that issue of performance later. But I think it's the same thing that the best way we can at an overall system level put children first is again by putting the people who interact with those children first, by making sure we're serving their needs, giving them access to the resources they need to go into the classroom and then tailor it for the kids who are in that classroom that semester or that year. So let's tie this uh, <coughs> idea of individual individuality back to this idea of creativity. So if we if we can manage to move our school systems and our and our other organizations um, to be more respectful um, for the individual initiative and, and creativity of, of knowledge workers, and we make those changes, how does that um, change how our organizations are creative? So my one of the assumptions that I tackled towards the end of the myths of creativity uh, is this idea of what I, I call it the mousetrap myth, and it's this idea that uh, we're that we're good. The myth is that we're good at recognizing creativity. The truth is that we are terrible at recognizing great ideas. Great ideas get rejected all of the time, whether it's in an education system or whether it's in a, a business system. And in fact, actually, I think it was Paul Torrance that kind of figured out somewhere around fourth grade, there's a drop off in measured creativity in students in primary school students. And I believe that's because around fourth grade, we become much more concerned with giving them the answers and testing their ability to regurgitate it than we do with their sort of ideas. That doesn't mean they're not still having ideas. It just means they're learning that the system's not rewarding that anymore. Right. And so one of the fundamental things mm -hmm. that I believe both and I talk about it in both myths of creativity and under new management is that we don't actually have to get better at being creative if we're defining creative creativity as coming up with novel and useful ideas. Most of the time, the people in our organization are already great at that. What we need to do is get better at recognizing the ideas that they have helping them test them, and then the ones that are, are really useful and valuable, helping scale those out to a broader level. 
And most of the time we're, we're awful at that. We want to judge an idea before we test it, which means over time people learn that their ideas are not welcome here. And it's not that they don't have those ideas anymore. It's that they're not sharing them. And truthfully, I believe that's worse mm -hmm. than if they literally aren't having the ideas. So let's talk a little bit about email. <laughs> one of our one of our uh, challenges, certainly in our roles, and you know, as we have moved from role to role, the email takes more and more time and energy just to manage it. Um, and so, how do companies that eliminate or reduce email do that? And what's the impact on creativity and productivity? Yeah. So one of the things I was fascinated with, and we moved it up to the front of the book because I think most people can resonate with it, is the love-hate relationship we all have with our email inbox, right? Especially around 2007 when our email inbox moved from just our computer to our phone, meaning it could get at us anytime we wanted, right? And suddenly, with almost mm -hmm. without permission, like we, we unknowingly decided to buy a smartphone because of Candy Crush. And what we got was email <laughs> around the clock, right? I don't know. So, <laughs> all right, maybe not Candy Crush. For me, it was Angry Birds. Dan, actually, I still play Randy Angry Birds. Play Candy Crush. Yeah, I don't do games on the phone. <laughs> I do. Well, I tell, you know what's funny is I I tell that to my son all the time because he steals uh, my wife's phone because there's all sorts of games on that. But the truth is, Angry Birds is still on there. Um, <laughs> we won't tell anyone. I, yeah, no, I hope he never listens to this. But you know, he's four, so I think we'll be okay. Right. Um, but so all of that to say, like we are inundated with email. And I think that a lot of companies have taken a step and gone, wait a minute, we never asked if this is the right tool, right? It was a really cool tool for two reasons. It was asynchronous and it was cheap, right? Didn't cost any money to send a message, to send a memo out to the whole organization cost ink and print and time. But an email doesn't, it only really costs the time of composition. So it's way cheaper. And it's asynchronous, meaning I can send it out and trust that even if you're not there, you'll eventually see it. Well, the, the problem is we we took advantage of both of those things, right? So now we're sending email any time of day uh, and we're sending it as often as we want. And we're hitting CC to everybody as often as we want. And there's a <laughs> lot of companies that have basically said, is this the best tool for collaboration? And the answer has basically been no. So some companies have banned it entirely. Some organizations have said you know, zero email internally. You can email around with customers, et cetera. But they would go and basically create a tool that would be better for collaboration. And there's a lot of tools out there that are off the shelf products like a Basecamp or Slack or something like that or an instant messaging system. Most of the companies I look at that managed to eliminate email entirely or managed to dramatically reduce their internal email had to build a custom system, which I think it's it's worth pointing out. There's a then pausing there and pointing out that it's an amazing idea to think about the communication needs of our organization first and then go pick a tool. Right. The problem with email is that we picked a tool before we thought about our needs. So revolutionary concept, right? What are our needs? And then we'll go shopping for a tool. But mm -hmm. a lot of companies have found, OK, there's no way we can do it. There's no way we can roll out a tool entirely. But we recognize the the negative effects of having this 24-7 always on thing. And they've gone to lengths of basically. And this is actually something almost anybody can do with a little quick fix in, in IT. They'll shut down their email servers after a certain period of time. So at six o'clock at night, ser server shuts off. You can still open up your computer or open up your phone and type out and make a reply, but it won't physically send until eight the eight a.m. the next day or eight thirty or nine the next day. So that the idea is, even those people who want to work around the clock or want to work at night don't have any sort of commitment, et cetera, and want to be productive and clear out there, they can still work, but they're not going to be 
dragging other people back to work when they want to be at home or they want to be with their family or they want to be on vacation. And I think that's probably more realistic than eliminating email entirely. But again, it comes down to that idea that we we never, basically 2007, we adopted this amazing device and we never thought about the implications. And only now, in 2015, 2016, are a lot of organizations going, wait, time out, we should put some boundary lines on this thing because we didn't realize that the other tools that we were using had these boundary lines and we need them back. And it pulls our creativity and our, our energy that we would use to solve problems and do those other things too. It just sucks that energy yeah, right ab- out of us. Absolutely. And, and my apologies. I forgot that that was the second part of the question because I went on my email rant and, uh, and then I talked about Angry Birds. <laughs> but one of the primary things that we need as a part of our creative process to be consistently, prolifically creative is we need periods of incubation. We need time when we're not thinking about that problem and it moves back to our subconscious. And it we, actually, the jury is still out among psychologists on exactly what happens when it's in our subconscious. But then when we come back to the problem at hand, we'll have more ideas and we'll have better ideas because of that. And if we're in an always on world where we're always demanding responses, regardless of the time of day, we're not letting people incubate, which means we are we're not only are we giving them sort of a license to to be burned out because they're always stressed and always thinking about work, but the quality of their ideas is going down because we're depriving them of incubation. So let's go back to that uh, idea of employee needs first, customer needs second. So in a service organization like a school or a school district, what does that look like where our customers are our students and our families and, and what, do, what does that look like? So I, th- okay, so, so first I have to go on, on two rants if you'll indulge me. Um, the first is that even in business, I believe that everyone is in the business of service these days. We're, it's not like, I don't think there's a fine line between product and service. It's all service, right? And it's because honestly, like product is commodity, right? But it's the, the extra things you provide when you deliver that product, aka the services that sort of distinguish that. My, my other rant is that I, in my mind, the jury is still out as to whether or not students and families are customers or products, if that makes sense. Like I actually tell my, I teach at the university level and I tell my students because we teach in a college of business that, that my product, like or my, my customer is a future version of themselves. You know, my, my customer is you five years from now when you've graduated and you've begun in your career or, or my customer is the company that's going to employ you two years from now. I need to make sure that the product I'm giving them is quality, Right. Which means that basically I don't have to put you first. Now, I, I do that because mentally, maybe they are customers, maybe they're not. It's, it's semantics. But mentally, what I want to point out is that in order to meet an objective, often you have to go for a different objective, right? So if you have a certain goal, like customer satisfaction, sometimes you have to look at what are the predictors of that goal and you have to focus on those first. In our everyday lives, I'll give you a great analogy. And that's if you want to lose weight, let's say you set a goal, you want to lose 30 pounds. Well, you can stare at a piece of paper that says lose 30 pounds all you want. But until you focus on the actions of reducing the amount of calories that you're eating and increasing the amount of calories that you're expending through exercise, nothing's going to happen. So that's not to say the goal shouldn't be to lose 30 pounds, but we need to focus on these other things. And in, in business, we found this really interesting thing called the service profit chain, which is exactly that. The predictor of customer loyalty the number one predictor of customer loyalty is employee satisfaction with the organization. And I believe it's the same thing in an education sector. The, the number one predictor, I believe, I, I'm saying I'm making this extension in faith. I don't have data, right? In God, we trust all others bring data. So today I'm in faith. <laughs> um, but I believe that one of the primary predictors of a, a good 
student and family experience is obviously the educator that's in the room with that student. But what is the predictor of a good experience between educator and student? Well, the educator's relationship with the rest of the organization. Is he or she getting the resources needed? Are they uh, plugged into a support system? Do, do they feel accountable to the, the rest of the education, the rest of the system, or does the system feel accountable to them to get them the needs? So I believe it's that same thing. Whoever, what, however we define customer product, what have you, the thing we have to ask in every organization is where is what um, Vinette Nayir of HLC Technologies, who is the first person to kind of advocate for this, what he calls the value zone. Whoever is interacting with that front line, that's the value zone. And every other position inside the organization ought to be accountable to the people in the value zone mm. so that they can take care of the customer. So again, it's not even in saying uh, employees first, customer second. It's not saying we don't care about customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. It's saying we're being realistic about what causes that and we're focusing on that. So based on your your faith or your ideas, you gave us a couple of ideas on how managers can put employees first. Do you have any other ideas there that you'd want to share? We have staff appreciation coming up. <laughs> we're always thinking about this. Like this is something really important to us. To me, it's it's less about um, acts of appreciation. They're a great start. But to me, it's really about accountability. And the reason I cite HLC Technologies is that they did something that I think is absolutely fascinating. Most of us, if you have a really large IT department, you're used to this. But even if you just buy any kind of product, you're used to that customer support system, meaning you you call into customer service or you call into IT, you start a ticket, right? And that ticket says you ha you're having this problem and this course of action needs to be taken. And then especially if you're on the phone with somebody in a customer service center, the last thing they'll ask you is, is okay, so I'm going to go ahead and close out this ticket because the problem is resolved, right? Because what they're trying to do is, is close out that ticket. Uh, HLC Technologies, when they realized that they needed everyone else to be accountable to the value zone, they realized the, the only way to do that would be with a similar system. So they created an accountability ticket system that people who were in the front line could say, I need this, right? I need this resource or I need this support. I need to talk to this person, whatever it is, you could start a ticket to that. And then it, it would go to, usually it would go to your supervisor, then your supervisor would figure out who else needed to be brought in. But only you, if, you, if you're in the value zone and you started the ticket, only you had the authority to close out the ticket. Mm. Meaning only when you had what you need or had a sas satisfactory answer for why you couldn't get it, could you close out the ticket? And then management and support functions were basically bonused or incentivized on how well they're closing out these tickets. How quickly does it take to do it and how, what percentage of them are they doing it? Now, I don't think every organization needs to go to that. I don't think a school that has this sort of customer support ticket among teachers. I mean, it, it's actually not a bad idea, but I don't want to advocate for it across the board in all places because it's about tailoring your organization to the needs of the, the people and the system and all of those sort of things. But it's not a bad start to look at an example like that and think, okay, well, what are we doing to make sure we're accountable to the people who are in the value zone? And that idea of just identifying a value zone, I think in our in our realm, our domain, our, our just not something that's all that common thinking. Mm -hmm. The thinking is not all that common. No, I... No, I agree. And, and in fact, you know, I earlier I sort of spoke too soon and I basically said that, you know, the, the educate the actual educator in the classroom is in the value zone. But I would I would actually think if you think about the larger education system, there's a there's a lot of other people that interact with the students and family that are part of the value zone beyond just that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think it's, it's actually even more complicated than a, a company where usually only people in a sales role are in the value zone. Right. In, in an education system, you, you really do have to start and go, you know what, who who is in the value zone? Who is who are the people that interact with 
the students and cause success for students and families? And then how do we design the system where they know they're in the value zone? Good questions for us to start asking. Well, we'll talk about them again in April too, but because now (laughs) I'm, I'm making a note to bring this up, even though it's not admissive creativity. And for those of our listeners who are unaware of April, uh, David Burkus is coming to PASA Ed Congress um, April 6th and 7th, I believe. Yes, at the Radisson Hotel Harrisburg. And in the show notes, we will put a link there in case you want to register. So let's move to this idea of hiring. And certainly in any organization, including public schools, as we are a part of, uh, hiring a good staff is one of the most important parts of our job. So what, what kind of new refreshing ideas do you share in your book in terms of looking at the hiring process? Yeah, I, I have this, this revolutionary idea that's, that's never been thought of before. We never t- No, I'm <laughs> totally kidding. But it, the idea is this. And this is one of those ideas, when I, when I tell it to you, you're not going to go, that's crazy. You're going to go, oh, it's yeah. crazy we don't do that. <laughs> the people that you need a new hire to work with should have a say in who you hire. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, you should hire as a team, whatever team you're putting that person on, they should have a say in who gets selected. But that's not the way it works in, in most organizations, regardless of sector. Most of the time, there is someone in a managerial role that interviews that person once or twice. And maybe there's another ceremonial interview with that person's boss or, or what have you. But then usually a person can get hired into an organization having only talked to maybe three people. Right. In a, in a company that could be tens of thousands in a, in a school system that could be several hundred employees. Right. You've only talked to a couple different people. And really, the, the reason for the, that this is terrible is twofold. One is the idea. What kind of message does that send to the team that you're then thrusting that person on that they had no say? Right. We just go back to this value zone and accountability thing. But the other thing is we have all met someone who is a wonderful interviewer, but a nightmare in person. Right? <laughs> and. You can fool a couple people, but you can't fool an, fool an entire team, right? And there's a lot of different ways that companies play this out. Some of them just hand the interview process over to the team. They train them on how to be good interviewers. And then when there's an opening on their team, they're the ones who interview it. And usually someone from HR is in the room, but they're not asking questions. They're, they're just there to document and make sure everything goes smoothly. The other thing that you can do, and this is actually, this is a little mean, but it's my personal favorite, is what Whole Foods Market does, which is the manager still sort of has the ability to hire someone, but that person gets placed on a team. And then at about 30 days or 60 days, depending on the team, the team will actually vote on whether or not this person is is a worthwhile contributor. So imagine again, that person that we all know, that is a wonderful interviewer, but a nightmare to work with. You actually get a say in whether or not you keep them, right? (laughs) It takes a two thirds, at Whole Foods, it takes a two thirds majority vote to keep them on in the organization and if, or in the team, and if they don't get that vote, then you either have to find them a new team or they're out of a job. Like, thank so long, thank you for playing. Here's your, here's a copy of our home game, right? And that's it, it's over. And John Mackey, one of the founders of, of Whole Foods, actually says that in his mind, a team doesn't fully gel until they reject someone. Because until you actually say, here's what we're holding each other accountable for, here's the level of performance that we decide is excellent and you're not meeting up to it, you don't actually, as a team, take a stand for that level of performance. If you just let anybody in because you're trying to be nice, you're lowering h- how accountable you're holding everyone to each other. And so it almost takes kicking a member <laughs> off the team in order to do that. Now. I recognize that sounds really, really mean, and it might not be applicable in all cases, but it goes back to that fundamental idea, which is that the people who are going to have to work with this person are the people who should have a say in who that person is. 
it's really it's a very interesting idea and you know certainly in education we have less flexibility in terms of hiring with our contracts and agreements but um well and i would say i would say you have a whole lot less flexibility once you hire right right right. and that makes the idea of making sure that you're doing the the rigor of hiring the right people even more important because once they're in the organization you have even less flexibility and probably why we see performance tasks and those sorts of um, different interview opportunities when people come in to join the organization. So thinking about, you know, once they're in and they've been hired, uh, how is their performance evaluated? And right now, performance appraisals in public ed are very regulated and they're managed as part of individual and organizational accountability. Uh, But we do have some flexibility in what we do or don't implement beyond our policy mandates. So in Pennsylvania, we have educator effectiveness, principal effectiveness. How might we start rethinking performance appraisals and what have been the benefits of organizations who have eliminated this aspect of accountability altogether? Yeah, I was going to say rethink. I'm kind of advocating for let's just throw them out entirely, Not (laughs) not throw out productive discussions about performance. But there have been a lot of organizations that have have given the performance review a performance review and it got a failing grade. And the reasons, in my opinion, are twofold. Uh, the, the first is that feedback is, is awesome. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. But when feedback only happens once a year, how much, how effective can that feedback be? You know, in, in other words, if you were an athlete and you went to go play a sport and then at the, like you finish the game and then a year after that game is complete, we tell you the score, how likely is it you can make changes for the game next Saturday, right? You can't. So part of it is the feedback cycle. The, the goals of providing feedback are very noble, but the feedback cycle is just far too far. And some companies have, have shrunk that and gone, oh, we do, we do a, a less rigorous but more frequent formal process. And some have said like, you know what, forget it. Let's, let's eliminate the formality entirely. And usually the ones that eliminate entirely are doing it for the second reason, which is that most performance appraisal systems at some point in the the review, there will be some kind of label assigned, right? Or or four or five, right? They'll say you meet expectations, you exceed expectations, you're underperforming expectations, or whatever euphemism you want to use for any of those things. Right? The problem happens is that whenever in the conversation that rating happens, you can almost count on nothing productive getting done after that because the, the mm-hmm. what should have been a well-meaning feedback session turns into a negotiation about why that number was picked, right? And in some cases, in companies that use sort of stack ranking systems, et cetera, the negotiation actually happened weeks ago when the different managers or administrators were arguing over how many people we should give this label to, regardless of how many people actually had that level of performance, right? So the labels become very dangerous because the actual review becomes about the label and not about the feedback. So the, the, the best example I have from the corporate world of doing away with it entirely and replacing it with something useful is, is Adobe. Adobe kicked the whole, the whole performance review system to the curb and they replaced it with training and coaching with their managers on how to have what they call check-ins. And check-ins have three specific elements. They can be an informal conversation that can happen as frequently as you need it to and in as little as 10 minutes. And the three elements are feedback, expectations, growth, and development. So any check-in session has to have all three. I'm giving you feedback on how you're doing right now and how you can improve. We're going to talk about expectations, my expectations for your performance and your expectations for what you need from me. And then we're going to talk about growth and development. Where, where are you intending to go? Where could we use you? What, what has the current plan changed? Do we need to make a new plan, et cetera? But feedback, expectations, growth, and development. And what I love about that, by the way, 
is not just do away with it entirely, but exactly what you said. There's a lot of people in a lot of scenarios where they don't have the authority to throw the whole thing in the garbage bin. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Anybody, even if you are forced to do an annual review system or an every six-month system, if you're in a managerial role or an administrative role, you can still have these conversations. There's no rule that says because we're having an annual review, I'm not going to have a check-in conversation. So you can just start doing on a regular basis these little 10-minute informal, not documented because then people will be more honest, conversations about feedback, expectations, and growth and development. And then it might actually even be better because if you're in that system where you're forced to give that evaluation, nothing in that evaluation is a surprise. You've probably had that same conversation three or four times leading up to that. Mm And so nothing comes as a surprise and it's just one more check-in and a series of check-ins to improve that person's performance. Mm-hmm. And these ideas actually parallel very nicely with other conversations that we're having, at least in K-12 public education these days. And it's the idea of throwing out grades for students and that, you know, grades, a score, a letter is not good feedback for students because they don't really uh, latch on to the learning. They're latching on to that label uh, first mm-hmm. and, and they don't think beyond that. So um, we've actually oh, ta- yeah, no, I'm- talked to a number of experts so far about this idea of grading and it's the same thing basically, but we're looking at employees here now. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you as a, as a college educator, it's the most annoying thing in the world to have somebody come up out of, <laughs> usually come up out of, you know, come up out of a K through 12 system. And one of the, and I, res, I respect that they've been trained that this is the goal and this is their aspiration, but they, they want to know, like, what do I, is this going to be on the test? Mm-hmm. What do I need to know to get a good grade? And almost every time, like when someone says, you know, what, what is this going to be on the test? What do I need to do to make an A in this class? I'll tell them like, I, I honestly don't care. I don't care. Don't ask, you know, like, don't ask me the question. I don't care. Well, what do you care about? Well, I have all of these learning objectives in the syllabus and I care about you learning those things. And like, and if, and if you learn all of those things and for some reason you're a terrible test taker and so you don't get an A, like we'll talk. Right. But I don't, I don't actually care. Here's like everybody when they, I give them a syllabus in the, in the beginning of the semester and, and students always turn to how, what's the point breakdown? And I'm always like, no, everything you need to know is on the first page. And if you figure all that stuff out, the le- like the learning objectives are right there on the first page. You figure that out, and for some reason you still have a B. Whatever, here's an A. Take it. I don't care. Like you, you got it. <laughs> but if you scored numerically an A and you can't actually Do think about, about it. It, like, any of those learning objectives, then like I've I've failed you at that point, right? Because I set up a system where you could get the grade you want without the learning that I want. So I've failed at that point. Earlier, you talked about incubation of ideas, and uh, we talked to Keith Sawyer early on uh, a couple months ago. I think you, oh, had, I love Keith. you had also interviewed him, and we learned about the the steps of creativity and the idea of play. So, did he talk about his? Did he talk about his playing cards? By the way, yes, exact playing yes, cards. Yes, yes. We do so have, cool. We do have a set. Awesome! No, those are so cool. Sorry, sorry. No problem. So uh, how, how can we as leaders find time to take sabbaticals, as I think you describe in your book, and, and how does this impact the creativity and the productivity process? So sab- sabbaticals was an interesting chapter for me because, like you said, there's a lot about incubation, a lot about you know divergent thinking, needing to, needing to cultivate uh, lots of different experiences so you can make a diverse combination of a new uh, that is a new idea. And so, so I mean, sabbaticals are, are great for that. Time off is is great for that. Stepping away from the everyday work. And you know, I I come from the the university system where like they're a given, right? That's a, although they're probably not given as frequently enough. What I, what I was um, 
But what I was most interested in is seeing that there's actually an organizational payoff to sabbaticals too. And it's not just the creativity. Yes, when, when people take sabbaticals, even, even if they're what I called mini sabbaticals, which are just like unexpected periods of rest. You know what? Like there's one company that will literally say they'll hold a drawing and the person that wins, they say, you get a week's extra vacation, but you have to take it in the next month. The reason that they're doing is, is one, to provide that rest and incubation, but two, it actually stress tests the organization, right? So if I just kick a person off the team for a week and say, we'll figure out how to, with only a month's warning, right, then I get a really good test of whether or not I've designed my organization in such a way that can, it can survive and be resilient. In the same way, there was one fascinating study I talk about in Under New Management in the nonprofit sector of using sabbaticals at the senior level as a tool for succession planning. So in other words, the, the top person or one of the people in the senior leadership team will take a sabbatical and the person we have sort of in our mind to replace her will, will fill that slot. And only for a limited period of time, but we get to sort of stress test it, right? I mean, think about it in the context of, of education, right? So you, you have a principal and you say, you know what, you're, you get to go, you're going on a sabbatical. And then we get to test somebody else in that role who might be in our development process for being that. And we get to see in real life whether or not, I mean, it's like king for a day, right? We get to see how they do. And either we figure out that they're a good fit, but they need some development here, here, and here. And we learn that by getting real experience. Or they figure out or we figure out that, you know what, this is not a good fit. You're not the right person for this role. And we figured that out before we made an irreversible decision. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's a there's a I'm sure you guys are, are well aware of it because they, there's this wonderful it's been around for so long. But the Peter principle, which basically talks about in a, in a hierarchy, regardless of sector, people rise to the level of their incompetence. And one of the things I wasn't expecting to find, in addition to all the creativity and novelty and productivity benefits of sabbaticals, was that it's basically like an, the antidote to the Peter principle, because you're, you're letting people rise to the level of their incompetence in a reversible way. Mm hmm. You know, so I, it's, I was not expecting that level of an organizational benefit, but it fascinates me. So in addition to the creativity and productivity, it's actually in the organization's best interest to stress test people in that next role. Certainly interesting. And uh, we'll have to tell you about the time Randy took three weeks off to go to Germany and... <laughs> <laughs> the whole place fell apart. I think I, no, it didn't fall apart, but I think I got stressed out. We started these podcasts uh, with the idea of redefining our vision for our classrooms, and we know that we need to make time for, um, to be creative and have this, this incubation and have learning opportunities. Are there any other takeaways in your book, your new book, that can apply to educators? You know, maybe there's one or two that you're going to talk about at the Ed Congress at PASA that you'd like to highlight. So if, if I could summarize like the entire, uh, the new book and, and the, the new book and how it sort of came out of um, the myths of creativity, which is about innovative companies and people and systems. And it, it would be actually with something that I didn't say, but a, a, a CEO, an entrepreneur by the name of Dane Atkinson said in one of my interviews with him, and he said, great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. And, and I thought that was absolutely brilliant because if, if you subscribe to the idea that we, we our people sort of know how to be creative, we just have to build them a system where they can be creative, then the question you should ask yourself is, how do we innovate the factory? Not how do we innovate our product, not how do we innovate people, sort of. So if you're in that administrative role and you're thinking about how do we innovate the classroom, it's really about, well, wait a minute, how do we innovate the system mm -hmm. so that the people who are in the classroom have the ability to innovate their classrooms, mm -hmm. right? And if you're in, even if you're the one running the classroom, it's less about what do I do but it's more about how do I innovate the classroom in a way that allows the students to figure out what they need to do 
you know, to, to, to be innovative in that sort of semester. And then we learn lessons from that and we do another iteration the next time around, right? So it's this idea, great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. I think, I think it's brilliant and I think a lot of people aren't paying attention to it. They're trying to build a system with the product central or the service central instead of people central. And that's, the, that's where the most creative companies, the most innovative organizations, governments, um, education systems, whatever your sector, the most innovative factories, factory being a metaphor, are the ones where the leaders deliberately think about how do we put people at the center of all of our decisions about what we're going to innovate? Yeah, yeah it's, the, it's this idea of that we're shape as leaders, we're shaping the climate and the culture. And, right. and when we don't do that, and then we feel like we're banging our head against the wall because things aren't changing. It's the reason why we need to go back to thinking about changing the factory, right. as you're saying. Right. I mean, really, if you, if you really think about it, the only two levers leaders can pull in an organization are the people you bring in and the climate and culture. Mm -hmm. And those are the questions you need to be thinking about. And if you can do those two things right, the rest sort of takes care of itself or other people in the organization sort of take care of it. Even, even when it comes to I mean, if you're a senior leadership role, especially, when it, even when it comes down to policy setting, et cetera, if you make sure you've got the right people and you make sure they're in the right climate, the rest kind of falls into place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big takeaway, uh, I think, for us from your book and from also from this interview. So to wrap up our interview here with David Berkus, uh, one of our first uh, interviews was with uh, the question, Warren Berger, the question right? guy. Yes, Warren. And he sent uh, me the questions ahead of time, and I recognized this one as a Warren Berger question. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what beautiful questions are you currently thinking about, possibly beyond your book? What's next? So, um, I don't want to give away this. I don't want to give away too much, but. Uh, every, I think every time I, I true to form with Warren Berger, every time I write a book, I end up with a question that like doesn't get answered and I keep looking back. And, and the question this time actually was a self-reflective question. I have in both books written about some fascinating studies from sociology and network science, mo usually by Brian Uzi, right? But, but by a, a couple different people. And it leaves me kind of fascinated because I think whatever your organization, we tend to think about an organization as existing um, on an org chart and then there's a, whoever's not in the organization isn't really an influencer, right? Or we think the only influences outside of the organization are competitors or regular. I think it's much more complicated than that. And I think it comes down to needing to think about systems as networks. And so I'm fascinated with um, networks. I don't know where that's going, mm -hmm. but I, there was a lot of, I mean, I realized I wrote two, two different books with two different goals and both times I ended up writing about this thing. So I'm sort of like, I guess I got to follow that for a little while and see where it goes. So that's that's kind of where I am right now is I'm just, I don't have one big, beautiful question other than why am I so fascinated with networks? And then hopefully lots of little questions come out of that and those little questions become chapters. Well, we'll have to see where that leads to. So thank you so much for joining us, David. Lots of great connections that we're able to make uh, to our work. And for our listeners, you can learn more about David's work at davidberkus.com. You can buy either of his books online at uh, Amazon. They're linked in the show notes, The Myths of Creativity, as well as Under New Management. Also in the show notes are a couple of TED Talks, uh, highlighting one, Why Great Ideas Get Rejected. We heard David talk about talk about that. Uh, there's a Google Talk there and also information for registering for the PASA Education Congress, uh, April 6th and 7th in Harrisburg. 
Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's question, uh, which of the ideas that we talked about today from David's book Under New Management discussed uh, would be your on-ramp to your organizational change and why? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org. Look for season two, episode 24. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes, let us know your star rating, and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, David. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Take care, Lynn. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.